engaged than ever before because we have so many things on our minds that keep us awake at night. In fact, right now, some of you are probably worried, uh, Bill, I've got an Easter ham in the oven. How much longer are you going to be up there? But uh, CBS News shared a consumer report study that said in the past year, as Americans, we've spent $41 billion on sleeping aids. The next year, it's expected to be $52 billion, and many of those things, they don't even work. Psychology Today asked people, uh, what is it that keeps you up maybe at 3 o'clock in the morning? And they compiled a list of the most common things that people worry about. Maybe one of those concerns is yours. Uh, They said that some of you, you're probably anxious about your purpose in life. Maybe it's regrets. Maybe it's anger. Or or maybe it's your family that you're worried about. Some of you lie awake thinking, "What, what do other people think about me? Or to be more close to the fact, what does that one person in my life really think about me? Maybe you look at what's going on in the world today. And you see the threats to the schools and work offices and and the terrorist threats. And and you just can't stop worrying about the future. But friends, whatever causes you insomnia, whatever keeps you up at night, I want you to know this morning, every bit of it was addressed at the tomb of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what went through the minds of those who came that first Easter morning in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 24. See the various emotions that played in their hearts and minds. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they prepared and they went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, And the others that were with them told this to the apostles, but they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Well, let me just say one more time to you this morning, uh, blessings to you this, this Easter and welcome. Because there is no group of people on this earth who should be prepared to to celebrate, to sing, uh, to lift up, to pray and worship together quite like those who believe in the Son of God. I, I love Christ more than words can say, but it is an honor always to celebrate the risen nature of our Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior with you. And I want you to know that not one of you is here by accident. The leadership of this church, uh, we have been praying for you. And we believe this is a very important day in your journey towards growing closer to God. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that some of you may not have wanted to be here this morning. Uh, maybe your spouse gave you an ultimatum. Maybe you lost a bet. Um, may, maybe you're just trying to keep peace in the family as children. Or you just go to church every Easter because it's what you do. 
before you sit down to an Easter brunch uh, table with your family. Some of you might have even thought you were going to an Easter egg hunt at the Buck Creek State Park and you pulled into the wrong parking lot. Uh, so you got tricked into being here this morning. But it wasn't an accident. I know that when we come together, we've got people from all different backgrounds here and life experiences. There are people in this room that believe in God. There are people that do not believe in God. There are people here that aren't sure what they believe about. We've got a mix of Republicans and Democrats here, probably even got a few from the Libertarian Party. And we have people here that just like to party, period. We've got Cincinnati Bengals fans here, and we've got people that don't, that don't even own a gun. Uh, I'm sorry, just a little Bengals humor there. You can put your weapons away. But whatever brought you here, I think this is an important day in your spiritual journey. Let me ask you for a show of hands on something. How many of you have ever attended a championship athletic event of some kind? Raise your hand. Maybe basketball, football, soccer, uh, running, lacrosse, but, but you were there for the championship. I remember sitting with my dad on March the 13th, 1980, at the Mideast Regional Semifinals in Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. The number four Kentucky Wildcats were playing the number 14 Duke Blue Devils in the NCAA uh, regional semifinals. Coach Joe B. Hall versus Duke's coach then, Bob Foster, and a young upstart that would replace him soon, a guy who, who nobody could pronounce his last name, Mike Krzyzewski. It was a Thursday night, and downtown Lexington was in a gridlock. But my eyes were, were locked on the court. My dad had somehow bought these tickets for us to be there, and by the time the game started, I found myself sitting in the upper nosebleed section of Rupp Arena, looking down almost center court with about 23,000 people that I did not know. But one thing I know is I wanted Kentucky to win. My eyes were locked every time that Kyle Macy was assisting Fred Cowan. You know, with the ball, 23 points he scored. Uh, Kyle Macy was feeding him assist after assist, scoring on the hard drive. Mike Gaminski and Gene Banks were answering shot for shot for the Blue Devils. And, and again, then I was a UK fan, and if I knew anything, I knew that God did not want a team called the Blue Devils to win a basketball game, okay? We spent most of our time, though, standing up on our feet, shouting, right until the point when Duke's shot won the game 55 to 54, one point. And what I had hoped was going to be a place of victory, well, Rupp Arena was actually a place of defeat for us that year. But you know what? I've noticed something over time. Over time, the electricity, the excitement of a championship game, it fades. The winning team doesn't come back at an annual parade to celebrate the championship game, nor do people spend thousands of dollars to go back and pay homage to their loss, to bow down to the players or the coaches of those games. Victory or defeat, it fades over time. And yet for 2,000 years, believers have been gathering not just once a year, but every week to commemorate the fact that Jesus Christ rose in victory from the dead, never to die again. And this weekend in cathedrals, in auditoriums and sanctuaries like this, in humble little church buildings and storefronts and underground churches in the world, and in outdoor arenas, people will come together to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. 
Some people will even spend thousands of dollars just to travel to Jerusalem to the suggested site of Jesus' grave. But it's empty. There's no body there. But it's such a special event because they believe that he is risen. And, and people who aren't even sure what they feel about Christ are in church this weekend because they can comprehend that if this is true, if Easter is true, friends, it changes everything. It has enormous implications for our life and the potentially destiny-changing impact of a decision. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all people are to be most pitied. But if Easter is true, if our hope is for more than the days we have upon this earth, it changes it all. You know, last year we didn't say much about it because really we didn't want to make the connection. But did you notice last year at Easter, it fell on Sunday, April the 1st, also known as what? April Fool's Day. And I, I thought, you know, that, that really is more than just ironic. Because I have it on pretty good authority in Scripture that that very first Easter, many, many people were shocked and surprised that Jesus came out of the tomb. There was one day in all of history that nobody believed he could come back from the dead, and that was on Saturday. Even the disciples didn't anticipate what Sunday would bring. And many people thought of death as a problem. But to Jesus, death was no problem at all. And friends, listen to me. If death is not a problem, nothing is a problem. Two months ago, maybe you saw it in the news, somebody won the $564 million Powerball jackpot lottery. $564 million. That is an inconceivable amount of money to me. And some of you say, Bill, if I had that kind of money, all my problems would be gone. Now, I know none of you would waste money on lottery tickets, right? And so I'm probably talking to the wrong crowd on this. Uh, but, but I'm just guessing that if you ever did and you won, you'd make sure the first thing you did is you would tie to the church and buy your preacher a brand new car. Of course you would. But let's say hypothetically you bought a lottery ticket. And hypothetically, you won the $564 million jackpot. What would you do with your winnings? I thought about that this past week, and I bet there are two things everybody in this room would do. Number one, I bet the first thing that many of you would do is you would pay off your debts. You'd pay off your mortgage. You'd pay off your auto loan. You know, you, you would pay off your school loans for some of you. Wouldn't that be great to finally get those things out of your life? Uh, you pay off your credit cards. You would zero out your debt. How many of you, first thing you do, right? You'd pay off your debt. Now, if you won $594 million and, and it wouldn't cover your debt, you got a problem, okay? The second thing I think many of us would do after we paid off our debt is we would go and buy something new. We would go and, you know, we'd buy that Tesla. We'd buy that Genesis or, or whatever. Some of you would buy a new house. You'd buy a, a new motorcycle, maybe a new camper or an RV. Uh, some of you, you would go to a plastic surgeon and buy a new you, probably. But um, we'd all buy something new. And it's amazing to think, what would I do if I had that kind of money? And some of you this morning, you, 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 you want to say, Bill, I wouldn't want that kind of money. You lie. <laughs> 
That's not true. Everybody would love to have that problem in their life. You know, I was thinking this past week, what is true of us financially, what we want, it's also true relationally, and it's certainly true spiritually. Because deep down, every one of us, we want to hit the jackpot. We want to have a, a new beginning. We want a fresh start. We want a resurrection. You see, it's there in your outline this morning. I, we all have this healthy desire for a new beginning because it's hardwired into each one of us. And while a new beginning can mean a lot of different things for each of us, I think it begins first with the knowledge that deep down, we all want our moral debts to be paid. We all want our sins to be paid for. And we would like to be made into something new. I want to anchor the rest of what I say this morning on one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. Could I do that? It comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And I want to ask you to read this out loud with me, if you would. Let's read this together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And now I'm going to do this. I'm going to put a blank there where it says anyone. And when we get to this again, we're going to read this out loud again. I want you to say your first name out loud. Can you do that? Let's do this again. Therefore, if Bill is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. See, I love that verse because it reminds us of the victory we have. Purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, being buried in a tomb for three days, rising to never die again once for all, so that you and I, we can have our moral debt forgiven, paid for, and he makes us into a new person. Romans chapter 6 verse 10 proclaims this, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's a life that you and I have because of him. Jesus didn't rise from the dead to make you a weird bunch of people. He didn't rise from the dead to make you guys like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons or, or the Bible-thumping mom like Sheldon Cooper's mom on The Big Bang Theory. Jesus died to bring you life and to make you into a new creation. But there's a problem for many of us, and, and that's what I want to resemble or uh, acknowledge with this mirror here this morning. I realize not all of you can see it because of the stands and things, but take my word, there's a mirror over here. The problem is when many of us come to this mirror, we don't like what we see. We don't like what's staring back at us in this mirror, especially when we think about our life in the past. What, does, what story does this mirror tell about you as you stand before it? Heard the story of, of a man standing in front of the mirror one night, and his wife was there too, and, and he was just having an awful, depressed moment. He said, honey, look at me. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm getting old. He said, babe, I could really use some encouragement right now. And she said, well, it appears like your eyesight is still pretty good. <laughs> you know, the truth is, when we look in the mirror, for some of us, when we see the past, what we see are, are, are the bad choices. The bad, uh, the choices we made, the mistakes, and we allow that to define who we are. Because you see, sin has consequences. And I'll tell you something you may have never heard a preacher say in your life. Sin is fun. The Bible says it's fun for a time. In Hebrews 11.25, it tells us sin is fun, but it's only for a season. Because it's always payday someday. 
There are side effects and there are consequences that come with sin in your life. And some of you say, but Bill, I'm living in sinful conditions right now and, and everything's fine with me. And I would just say to you, give it some time. Just wait. God isn't mocked. You know, a man reaps what he sows. It's coming. And you're going to experience what many of us have experienced in life and we have learned the hard way. And that is that sin always comes with consequences. In fact, the greatest consequence of sin is death. And as we come to look at ourselves, always looming in the background in large dark letters is the death. Romans 6.23 says it's the wages of sin. It's the payroll of sin. It's death. But there's more. You see, when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we recognize that we sin, we recognize we fall short, we feel like we are stuck. And that becomes to define who we are. My life is stuck. The way it is now is the way it's always going to be. And then some of you, you grew up in homes. Or maybe you grew up in churches or in schools where you received verbal damage. Words that just wounded you and stuck with you. And you were told, you know what? You're not good enough. You're not fast enough. You're slow. You're not smart enough. In fact, you're stupid. And that still sticks over your life. You remember those words and they stick with you. Some of you were told you're inadequate. Maybe for some of you, you dealt a time in your life where you felt the person was always going to be there for you. And maybe, maybe you just felt that. But maybe you could speak their name this morning. Or somebody said, I'm always going to be here for you. But one day you looked up and they betrayed you and they were gone. And suddenly you came to learn about yourself that, that maybe you weren't worthwhile. If people come into my life and people leave, well, maybe that just means that I'm worthless. And every time we go to the mirror, what we see is not what God intended. We see all of these labels that have been stuck with us through life. Now, I have been a minister for over 27 years now, and I can tell you that one of the things that people struggle with more than any other is sexuality. And when they think about their past, they think of something that they've done or something that was done to them. And that presents such a roadblock in their life that they can't get beyond they're marred in their heart. They're marred in their soul. And what can be done about it? And they remember the words of people telling them that they were ugly or they were stupid or, or inadequate. Other people, every time they look in the mirror, what they see is addiction. And when you see me, what you see is an addict. Maybe it's the meth. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's pornography. And every time you try to to overcome it. It's, it's always there staring you in the face when you go to the mirror so that you feel, you know what? That's just who I am. That's all that can be expected of me and it will not ever change. For some of you, you could take the pen. You could write maybe bitterness in, 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 on, the, on your mirror. Somebody hurt you, somebody wounded you, somebody abandoned you, somebody fired you. And now every time you look in the mirror, you see the word bitterness and, and friends around you will say, well, you just need to learn to forgive yourself. You just need to learn to forgive other people and, and you can't. 
and your life is consumed by bitterness. And Acts 8.23, it could be said of you, I see that you're full of bitterness and you're captive to sin. You see, what happens over time is our life gets to be defined by these things. And we don't get to see what we're meant to see. And what is that? Well, Genesis 1.27 tells us it's more than just a nice ideal of Scripture. It's the way God intended it. You are supposed to see a person made in the glorious image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. But I can't see that. Because when I look in the mirror, not only do I see these things, I see, I see a failure. I see somebody that never measures up. I see somebody that's always looking for the way to, to make things right, but I can never put my finger on it on how to bring about that change. And sometimes it means I see a person who's hopeless. Maybe you have an issue with anger, and every time you look in the mirror, you, you see the word rageaholic. Maybe you see the word liar, and that's come to define who you are. Now, if you're a person here this morning, you say, Bill, somebody here is really a mess, okay? Because all these things, they don't apply to me. In fact, I got nothing on my mirror. Well, if you think that, that there's nothing wrong in your life, well, you could put the word pride on there for yourself. And it's the big one. In fact, it's the one that led Satan to getting kicked out of heaven along with a third of the angels, and it's the one that will eat your lunch every time. It defines us. This is my past. This is my present. And apart from any change, this is going to be my future. And we are forever sinking down lower and deeper into this abyss. But friends, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even those who would come confused, weary, depressed, discouraged that morning, they knew our history need not be our destiny. Our history does not need to be our destiny. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Let me unpack that a little bit for you this morning. That means that that guy sitting back there, that means that this young lady sitting right here, this guy sitting here, and that person, and that person, and that person back there, in fact, that means that every one of us can have our sin debts paid for. It means that we can become brand new. When you're in Christ, he refreshes you and he restores your joy. When you're in Christ, he makes all things new, including you. And you might say, Bill, I'm not in Christ right now. But friends, the power of Jesus' resurrection, it can, it can go all through you today. But here's how we handle this for most of us. When we don't like what we see in the mirror, we say, well, you know what? I'm just I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to do more good things in my life. And you say, you know what? I'm not a bad person. I never murdered anybody. I buy Girl Scout cookies at Walmart, you know. I, I, I support a child in the Philippines. I even pay my taxes, most of them. And, you know, so, so I'm a pretty good person. You know what the Bible says about that? It says in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who's unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now it says all of us are unclean. I looked up the Hebrew for that 
And do you know what the word there in Hebrew literally says? It says all of us. <laughs> it means every single one of us are unclean. That every act we have, the one word that I can't share with you is the word for filthy. Because it's Easter, we're sitting with family today, but let me tell you, it is the ugliest, dirtiest, most down and out word you could ever read in Hebrew. Because that's what, it, that's what it's like in our life. And every one of us can say, you know, our unrighteous acts, I know they're dirty. I know they're filthy. But that's not what the scripture says. It says all of our righteous acts. Even on our best day, it says we don't measure it up. But how most of us try to handle it is like this. We grab our towel. And we think, you know what? I can clean this up. Because what, what's really going to take care of this is if I just go to church more. Or I pray a little harder. Or, uh, you know, I go to Bible study. I show up every night of the week at the church. And um, maybe I give a little more. Maybe I sacrifice. Maybe I, I show up on, on a worship team or a, another team at the church. Maybe, you know, I just take care of my elderly neighbor next door. And we try to clean it up the best we can with our filthy rags. And what do you call that? It's smeared. It's a mess. We make an even bigger mess out of our lives. This is what's called religion. It's all about what I can do, all about what I can perform and try to make things right within my life. And there's not a person here, I believe, that doesn't want the reality of knowing our faith has got to be more than just a religion. Religion is always where you do more. And truth be told, some of you this Easter, maybe you're here because of religion. Maybe you're here thinking, you know what, I've got to go because it makes God happy. And if God's happy with me, I'm going to be all right. And I go to church at Easter. It's based on what you do and upon what you think. Score one for me. But, but Jesus died on the cross for a whole lot more than religion. He died on the cross for relationship. In fact, Jesus reserved some of his strongest words for the religious people of his day, the Pharisees. In fact, look what he calls them in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus is saying you can make a tomb and carve it out of the finest marble or granite. You could paint it all up and make it look nice and pristine on the outside. You could plant the prettiest flowers around it, but on the inside, it's still decaying. It's still rotting. And Jesus said, that's what you're like. If you pursue religion, you can go to church, friends, every weekend. You can be here 52 Sundays out of the year. You could show up on Sunday nights or at home care groups throughout the week. You could come anytime the doors are open, and you could be, like some of us here, involved in every potpourri of activity that goes on with the church. And you know what that gets you in relationship to this? Zilch. Absolutely nothing. It, it, it gets a mess. Because I'm filthy unless I'm in Christ. Friends, you're filthy unless you're in Christ. 
Jesus came along in Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. He's saying, watch out for those people who, who are quick to say, you know, Jesus and I, we are just like this. Jesus is my BFF. You know, he's my best friend forever. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Jesus, didn't we do a lot of things for you? Didn't we do a lot of things in your name? Jesus, wasn't that so religious? And Jesus says, I'm going to call it what it is. It's a mess. And then Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You had the relationship. You didn't have uh, the religion. You didn't have the relationship away from me, you evildoers. Evildoers that tried to make it all up just by being good, by going to church, but evildoers who are not in the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes you could hear it in the language of, of people on Monday morning. Sometimes you could hear it uh, as they're around the water cooler or in the locker room. Sometimes they're sitting across from you uh, at the lunch table at school. Sometimes you can read it on their Twitter or Facebook post. You could see it in their language. James said this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. In other words, as a believer, there's speech that's wholesome and speech that is good and there's speech that should never come out of our mouth. You can, you can nail apples to a telephone pole and call it an apple tree, but it doesn't make it so. And there are things within our life that do not belong. And if we're in Christ, we bring forth good fruit. You see, religion, trying to be good enough, it just makes a mess of things. And in your power, you can't do anything about this. In my power, I can't fix this. It takes the power of an empty tomb. That's why the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, the one who burst forth from the grave. It doesn't say if anyone is in church or if anyone is in worship or in prayer or in serving. It says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Friends, the love and the grace of God, it isn't something we achieve. It's something we receive with open hands. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in this mess right here, 2,000 years ago, Christ entered humanity as a helpless baby. He grew up and he lived a perfect and a sinless life. And at the age of 30, he began a very public ministry once he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin, John the Baptist. And he taught with authority. And he did things that no one that was not from heaven could do. He healed the sick. He calmed storms. He walked on water. And best of all, even people who didn't like religion, they liked Jesus. Because he loved them. He welcomed messy people. And the religious people of his day, they didn't like him because he didn't acknowledge them for all their religious righteous acts. And because they didn't receive his praise, because they didn't receive his attention, 
they bargained with one of his disciples to betray him. And he was arrested and he was mocked. He was tried as a criminal and he was beaten. And his face was slapped without restraint. And for every hand that connected with the body of Christ, he could look at that hand and remember the day that he had formed it in the womb, knowing full well what would happen. He went out of his way to express his love because that's what mercy does. They nailed him on a cross on a Friday and he hung naked and bleeding for six hours, suffocating in anguish. And when he came to his final breath, he didn't say, I'm done, it's, I am finished. What did he say? It is finished. In John's Gospel, in John 19, 28, it says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there and they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. I have paid for the sins of the entire world. Friends, I want you to remember today that, that if you wear a cross around your neck, it's not just an ornate decoration of jewelry. The cross is, is not a simple decoration. It is a declaration of the love of God for you to the extent that God went to for you. And they took him off the cross and they placed him in a borrowed tomb. And I love that because he wasn't going to be needing it for very long. And on the third day, the stone was rolled away and the angel said, he's not here, he's risen. He's off the cross. He's not here. And the reason that the stone was rolled away, it's been said, is not so that Jesus could get out, but so the disciples could go in and see Jesus had won. Death was defeated. He's alive. And so that you and I could be made into new creations, so that you and I could be changed forever and made into something brand new. You see, Jesus makes you new when you feel inadequate. He makes you a new creation when you feel like you failed, when you feel that you can never forgive yourself. He makes you a new creation when your health is failing. He makes you a new creation when everybody else seems to believe that there's no hope for you. He came to make you new so that your old self could be destroyed and because of his resurrection power, what you once defined yourself as, what you could never see God had created you to be, He destroyed, and he made you new so you could come once again and see you were made in the image of the one true God. The question is, when did that happen for you? Has it happened for you? You say, well, well how would I do that? The Bible says this in John 1, 12, Yet to all, and this is open to everybody, to anybody, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave. Notice, he gave it. You did not work for it. You can't earn it, and you surely don't deserve it. This, this is not religion. He gave the right to become the children of God. So let me ask you again, 
When did this happen in your life? When did you receive him? When did you believe in his name? When did he make you into a new creation? When did your sin get paid for? When did you gain a new identity? I'm asking you right now, are you in Christ this Easter? I'm going to ask Miss Peggy if she would come up and, and begin to play for us this morning. I want to bring the scripture up one more time, if I can, from 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You know what, that blank right there, uh, it could have your name on it today. You could receive and be a new creation before the sun goes down on this Easter 2019. It was said of Jesus in John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. Is there a better picture of what it means to be a new creation? I mean, we don't need to come up with one, really, because God already gave us one. It's called baptism. And any time that somebody is baptized in water, what's happening is they're identifying themselves with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In the New Testament, we read it was a holiday. It was a celebrated day when, when all the people were there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they were ready to say yes to Jesus. And when they received him and they said yes, they spontaneously and immediately were baptized into him. 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. It says, Peter responded to them and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not one out of 3,000 said, Well, let me go away and think about this for a while. Let me join a class so I can learn more about this. Or, or let me wait until I feel like it sometime. Not one of them said, you know what, it's a holiday. I'm here in my best clothes. Let's just wait till the holiday is over. They said, now, I'm going to do it today. And it could be a day for you to celebrate like no other that Jesus Christ is moving in your life to make you a new creation. So what's to stop you? What's to stop you from making that move for Christ and receiving him and being baptized today? If you've looked into the mirror and you, you said, I don't like what I see. I don't like the person staring back at me. I want to be new when I look in the mirror. What better time than Easter Sunday to make that choice? Friends, the decision is yours. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Charlie is going to come forward to receive you. We're going to sing a song of decision. And friends, if you're looking to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to declare that before others, to enter the waters of baptism. If you're looking this morning to, to make this your church home, he's going to be here to receive you. Before we sing this song, and as the men are up here, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we make a mess of our lives because of our own sin. And there's not a person here. We all sin. We all smudge the mirror. We all make that mess. And for many of us, there's a lot in our past. In fact, that mirror might be too small to write down all the things that are in our past. But it's not the volume of that we're to recount. It's the fact that we can do nothing about that volume. Only you, because of your perfect life, because you're God. Only your holiness qualified you to be the, the perfect sacrifice for our atonement, to make us at one 
with God. Lord, I thank you for that this morning as we sing this song. Whatever decision you've placed upon on your people's heart, let them choose now because today is the day of salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name.